The time, December 18th, 1987. The film, Batteries Not Included. A group of tenants in an apartment block are being forced to move out so it can be demolished. The tenants are reluctant to move, so the developers hire a local gang to persuade them to leave. Fortunately, visiting alien mechanical lifeforms come to town. When the alien lifeforms befriend the group of tenants, the aliens use their extraterrestrial abilities to help our tenants in more ways the tenants could ever imagine. Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, two titans of cinematic review. Sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but always captivating. Your host Antonio of the Cult Worthy Cinema Podcast and Justin Henson of The Movie Wire are here to take you back to the balcony. Now, the 80s were filled with a lot of these unique family fantasy films, such as The Explorers, Harry and the Henderson, Short Circuit, Willow, Flight of the Navigator, Never Ending Story, along with many more. We've had a lot of these films that focused on unique characters that really added an emotional element for kids that grew up in the 80s, where true imagination in family films really flew out of studios. There was a certain amount of risk-taking. Some may argue that the 80s was a wild, wild west of family films. But when we talk about family film risk, here is a movie that involves some subtly darker themes in terms of loss, change, aging, but also adds a positive message to community and welcoming characters with no dialogue to give hope throughout the movie. But this is what's so special to me about Batteries Not Included. This is a film that I saw when I think I was about six or seven years old, and I remember seeing it for the first time. I know, Antonio, you probably saw it in the theater, but this was a VHS movie for me. And as a kid, I still remember, to this day, the way this movie really affected me emotionally and how I felt after viewing it. And as a kid, being six, seven years old, when you're presented with something that you feel something new emotionally, this is where it draws me back to viewing it multiple times. Because even today, as an adult... This film is a roller coaster of emotion with every single person or every single alien on screen that I actually really did care about from even being a kid to today. This is one of those films that really stuck with me through my childhood. And it's usually one of those that I think back to when I think of one of those 80s movies growing up that really did help me grow when it comes to the love of cinema and, what, and just the emotional attachment to the love of characters. So what what about you? Your first viewing? Yeah, it was a theater man. <laughs> I figured as much. Yeah, I remember I saw a lot of movies with my dad, and this was right up my alley. You know, there is something to be said about the whimsical sci-fi nostalgia that Steven Spielberg and Amblin brought to us back in those days. It was it was formulaic almost to a fault, but it didn't matter because it's what we wanted. Like, as an audience, that's what we went in expecting. Blame E.T., man. E.T. is what did that for us. It put us in that mood. It put us in that particular mindset of we are going to have some sci-fi fantasy, but also we're going to talk about human emotions, family dynamics, things that are relatable, and being able to tell a sci-fi and sometimes horrific story within that. And I think this is one of those films that perfectly encompasses it, even though Spielberg didn't direct it and didn't really do much then produce it. It still has that Spielberg coat of paint on it, right? But like I said, in the 80s, that's what we wanted. And in my opinion, I think that we still want it. And I feel we are so disappointed in a lot of Spielberg films the last, I'm going to say, 15 years because we still long for those days. And when he tries to do it now, it doesn't feel the same because it's a different motivation. I think back then it was about storytelling. I think now it's more about money and finance and prosperity, and it's obvious. So being able to rewatch this film, and I watch this movie like maybe once or twice a year. It's a, it's a rewatcher for me in this house. It really did make me come to that conclusion even more where it's like, 
Remember those days where you could have a film like this about a robot or about flying saucers or about a little alien and it made you feel like they were family? That's this movie for me, for sure. Well, and we look at a lot of these movies, especially with batteries not included. And I think I watched it again today. And I this week, it's probably been three viewings just because it, I really like that nostalgic piece of it. And the more I watch it, really diving into it, and in no way is this movie a masterpiece, but when it comes to the emotional attachment of what it's going after, it is spot on on its messaging and its execution. Because you're you're right, when we come to movies today, this is where we really lack on the emotional element, the risk-taking. It's all about money, studios. So the time has come and almost gone, and we look at the Spielberg Studios, on his production company, and he's worked with the same people year over year, and... A lot of that, when you kind of do the same thing over and over again, that's when we get a little complacent. Um, And it's hard to bring back that risk-taking from the 80s where we have dragons, we have robots, we have all these elements that really made kids critically think. We have these subtle underlying messages that really challenge kids to really challenge their their emotional output and really kind of have an imagination of their own. We don't have that anymore. It's spoon fed. And that's one of, we've had numerous discussions on this and that's what really drives me crazy about current family films and animated movies. There's a little that really challenged the youth like we would get from the eighties. I would go to an eighties movie now, especially batteries not included and show that to my kids before I show any of the kind of animated movies we get in the last decade. Well, I think one of the ways I look at it is that we've become so binary in separating children entertainment from adult entertainment. When this comes from a generation where these were family films, like I agree with you, the family movie does not really exist anymore. I think you can find it on TV in, you know, series, you can find it in scripted television, but when it comes to theatrics, listen to your own reviews, man, you've got fart jokes for the kids. And then you've got, maybe too overly mature dialogue or context for adults, but you don't make a package that everyone can enjoy together. I think Pixar used to do it really well. I think they've stumbled a lot. But what happened to the live action? What happened to this? What happened to that PG rated that still had a little bit of danger and a little bit of suspense, but at the end of the day, the children could enjoy and understand the adult context and vice versa. So I guess that's the question I want to ask you first is, do you consider this a kid's movie or do you consider this like a family movie? To me, this, when we look at the time it was released, this one to me would be a a family movie, hand over heart, because this one has all the elements to it. You have the robots that kids will eat up. You have kind of the silly score that I'll talk about later in the show. That's just amazing to me. Um, You have, relatable characters that hit every button, no matter who the viewer is. You have the grandma and grandpa type of character that you really feel for. You have the artist, you have the mother-like figure, all the elements tie in. And there's really nothing vulgar in this movie, except for some traumatic elements towards the end. Um, So everything in this movie really speaks to something for everybody when it comes to the family. And this is where I've said it before is This is one of those movies that I wish would have almost come out today because this is where we start to have a lot of conversation around the the themes and the topics around this, where I don't think a lot of families did back in the 80s. They made it an event to the theater, and that was kind of the standard. There were so many of these movies, but how do we pick which ones are going to affect our kids? Because going to the theater was almost a normal thing for a lot of families. We don't see that so much anymore. And this would have been a great picture to have in this day and age to really explore those emotional elements. Well, because it could open questions from kids to adults about subjects like gentrification, subjects about Alzheimer's and retirement and loss. Like those are all things that this movie really rides on is these kind of serious subject matters and brings in the whimsy with these characters. And I love the fact that you talked about films, flight of the navigator, ET short circuit is the other one too. You know, they 
created these, I'm not going to say anthropomorphic, but they humanize objects that don't necessarily feel they should be humanized. You know, it's that weird kind of uncanny valley where if you're going to start giving uh, artificial creations intelligence and emotions and make them sentient, it goes two ways. It either goes the evil route where they become self-aware and they want to destroy humanity, or it goes into the short circuit, batteries not included dynamic, or flight of the navigator where they're trying to understand what it's like to be human and what it means to be human and what can bring the best out in humanity. Because that is also one of the things that these films all ride on is you've got an agency that's trying to destroy something, whether it's a science thing, whether it is a globalist or these corporate construction dudes and real estate guys. I mean, all these eighties movies reek of capitalism, right? And then you've got the little guy, you've got the, the old people who've been there forever. You've got the artist who seems to be a man of means, but chooses to live in this degraded building because he finds it interesting and fascinating. That's a character that I, I have actually quite a few fascinations with that we can talk about later. So yeah, I think that is, it's a morality play. And you're bringing all these different dynamics into it. And for being a sci-fi fantasy film with these little creatures and these little robots, it doesn't put all its weight on them. Yes, they're in the marketing, right? They're on the poster. The movie is titled after them, but they are not carrying the film like the way E.T. does or the way that Johnny Number 5 does. And I think that's what makes this one a little bit more special to me because it does play more on these characters that are just kind of driving that plot of the creatures along. I love the fact that you uh, mentioned that they don't have the robots or the aliens as a main focal point. Because there is so much good writing here when it comes to the characters, that there is a big group of characters and each one gets almost equal screen time to focus more on their internal conflicts or things that they're going through. So there is a lot on the plate of this movie. And I love the fact that the aliens act more as a symbolic ray of hope and they're there to support almost like a supporting role to the characters, because even as a six or seven year old where robots, you see a robot on screen and that's cool. Me, I was intrigued by the characters. I remember just being obsessed with and caring where these characters, what was going to happen, what was going to be the outcome right from the get go, where we have the conflict of the movie of them being in danger, of being kicked out right from the first 15 minutes. We care about these characters and it sets a good foundation before we actually get into our aliens to the point where it's almost like wishing upon a star where we have Frank at the table asking somebody, please help. And then we get into that magical score. So there is a lot of elements here that just really speak to that emotional character attachment, um, especially being, like I said, me being a young kid and multiple people being young watching this movie, you're going to have that attachment to these characters, not just the robots. So we have to talk about the creative juices behind this then, because that is something that you see thematically throughout the people who put this screenplay together. So first of all, story by Mick Garris, a hero of mine. Yeah, people have always made fun of his Stephen King adaptations, and now they're holding them with like a new reverence because they were just kind of ahead of their time. This is the guy that brought us a story for Hocus Pocus. You know, so this guy's been in the industry forever. And you can see his DNA in the story, in the creation of this plot, in the creation of these characters. But I think it's the Brad Bird in this film that really brings that heart because we've seen that heart in Iron Giant. We've seen that heart in Incredibles. We've seen it in lots of different things he's been a part of. So Ratatouille, you know, you feel the, the heart and the emotions. There's a line in that, in that scene that you were just talking about where they're asking each other where they came from. And Frank says, well, I think they're here for me because I asked for hope. And the guy's like, you really think that? And he's like, well, if you ask why a miracle is a miracle, then it stops being a miracle. I, I like that because it it gives just enough ambiguity to why they're here. Like they could really just be here to get electricity and to reproduce. But the happenstance of the things that are going on at the same time, it, it really makes you wonder. It's like, well, did they hear 
angst and the anger in his voice and then the desperation, and that's what drew them. You don't know, and you never really find out, and I like that. You know how I'm a big fan of ambiguity, and this does it just well enough that it can let you decide which way it really wants to say the story is going to go, but it doesn't affect the outcome of the story. I hate that you said that line because I had that line ready to go of the miracle line. <laughs> but the question, and this is, we will get into the critics saying it, but this is, and one of the things that drove me nuts with it, but when we come of the big of question of, of why, why are they there? Why, what's their motivations? It doesn't matter because this is a type, again, a family movie. It's supposed to spark imagination. And this is when you ask the right. question, is this a family movie? This is one of those elements of why it's a family movie. Because if it's spoon-fed everything that we see today, then it wouldn't be, to me, a family movie. It's something targeted for kids. Because when we ask that question of why with our kids, why with the family, it opens that discussion for the entire family. And it opens up that critical thinking for kids. So the problem we have is we forget how movies do affect. And this is one of those prime examples of we don't need to know all the details. Let the imagination fill in the blanks because right now this ensemble is executing what it's there to do, which is give an emotional reaction, tell a story, and have a point and a message by the end of the film. And the message of community in this movie is spot on. It's not a let's all team and band together at the climax that we see so many times. This is one community that gets together and brought together by one singular object that really pull this community together. And that's the importance of this movie. And that's the importance of tying a bow on what makes a family movie. And as we, you said, you see it two, three times a year. There's a reason behind that because of the elements of why and the elements of filling in that wonder that we don't see so much in movies anymore. I think the other thing too, that really hits me with this movie is that when you do know the creative forces behind it, how it seems so out of place, yet that is exactly why I feel it is as special as it is. I use the same reference of where I think that foreign directors shoot America better than American directors do. And the reason why is because they shoot it like a postcard. They are not familiar with the settings and surroundings or cityscapes. So when they see it and they capture a shot, they're capturing it from the viewpoint of what they think it should look like, not what an American filmmaker does and is like, well, I know what it looks like and I want people to feel what it feels like. That's the difference, I think. So when I say the creative juices behind this, Mick Garris is a horror guy, horror writer, mostly. And then Matthew Robbins, the director, is a horror director and a horror writer. He wrote most of Guillermo del Toro's movies. So you have these horror icons bringing together a sci-fi fantasy family film and the jokes land differently, the beats land differently, and the punches land differently than a Spielberg film would. And it's that little bit of a skew on how they write, direct, shoot, edit, composite, all those things. That's why it makes this one feel a little bit different because it's not the type of filmmaker and writer and director that does this every day. They are stepping out of their comfort zone and it's that step out of their comfort zone that makes it feel unique. And it's taking me several years of rewatching this movie to finally understand why I feel that way about this movie. It's the same way with Joe Dante when he does Small Soldiers or Gremlins. This is a horror director making a family movie but still putting his little tweaks in there and it's what makes it feel emotional yet a little bit dangerous. It's one of those where, again, it's a risk-taking, right? Where studios kind of rolled the dice on a lot of these movies right. and some of them hit, some of them miss. But the thing is that it grew a lot of these careers that we we saw. I mean, we look at a lot of the writers. I mean, Brad Bird was probably the most successful out of all of them when it comes to that. And it shows a lot in the writing that you can relate a lot to his future movies and some of the heart in this movie. Uh, Mick Garrett, obviously successful with Hocus Pocus. I mean, we can take a lot of these successes from this movie because this is a good foundation of these writers on adding a good amount of heart into their work. 
this is a rarity in film where we take three writers and it seems like they're writing the same composition. They're writing the same ensemble and they're all on the mm-hmm. same page. So this is one of those rarities that we will ever see when it comes to writers and it is just an emotional thing to see, not just on storytelling, but just the amount of almost community these filmmakers have to kind of have the same vision, the same goal when it comes to what they want to create. And the execution that I talk about a lot on my show is at the end of the day, it's it could be a horrible movie, but is the execution there? This is one of those that, again, isn't a masterpiece, but the execution is almost flawless with what they were trying to go after. And they have the performers to bring it to life. You know, so we already knew. I mean, Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy have a decades-long relationship with each other, but also career spanning through multiple films from the golden era all the way up to the 80s where they're doing Cocoon and then this. And then she would go on to do Fried Green Tomatoes and Driving Miss Daisy and so on and so forth. But the diversity of the characters written is enhanced so much by the performance of the diversity of the cast. Elizabeth Pena, rest in peace, one of my favorite actresses uh, from La Bamba and this. And like, it's just, she is such a great character because she brings credibility to an ethnicity that it would be very easy to cast someone maybe not of that ethnicity in this character and doesn't feel real, right? Frank McRae, one of my favorite character actors, really kind of doing a ahead of its time representation of brain damage, of, you know, cranial shock, of potential spectrum disorder, you know? And they don't have to give him a full backstory to make that character feel empathetic and sympathetic. All they have to say is Hume Cronin says he was a great fighter. I used to bet on him. And then you do the math. Why is he so simple? Why is he a superintendent of this broken down building? Doesn't talk, has very childlike mannerisms. You can do the math and it makes you understand that character and feel for that character so much more. Well, even we take Carlos, Michael Carmine, who, unfortunately, again, rest in peace. I mean, he died, I think, when he was 30, um, just right after this movie. Yeah, ahead of his time. And this was mm-hmm. one, his, I think, last movie. Correct me if I'm wrong. But this performance that he has is, to me, one of my, not favorite of the movie, but he plays a villain that, by the end of the movie, he transitions so quickly and so good with his performance that he convinces an audience to really root for him. Now I've always complained that the transition at the end of a movie goes to so quick and here it does, but he makes it believable. And to me, this was one of the biggest amplifications of a performance or a comeback of a performance uh, when it comes to a villain. So to me, he was one of the standout performances that I think in this movie, not to say that the whole cast, the whole cast was great. Um, but this is the one that really stood out to me. Um, there shows a lot of talent. If you can transition to have a likability by the climax within the last act. Oh yeah. He's my favorite character in this movie. Uh, and again, like he's also in Leviathan too. I think that might've been his last movie. That's right. But yeah, I agree with you 100%, but they also give him in the backstory and through his performance, the reason, like, he's not this guy because he's an asshole. He's getting paid because it's his only way out of the neighborhood. He's tired of being a thug. He wants more, and he thinks that by licking the boots of these venture capitalists, that's going to be the way out. So you do have that empathy for him, but I love the choice to not let him have resolution at the end because even though he comes and he's you know sympathetic and he's apologetic he doesn't get the closure that he wants. And that's a good thing, you know, because that's going to teach him better lessons in the future. It's not going to redeem all the things that he has done in that moment. So again, that's a great resolution to a character that in any other movie would just be secondary and and disposable. And it wouldn't be a great moral lesson. If this is a family movie, if the bad guy got away with doing bad things. Right. So right. I think you're right. The resolution was a hundred percent accurate. So we like him, 
But and again, they don't focus a lot too much on the outcome of them, which is great. But we know accountability happened with the villain for the actions, obviously. I don't really have a lot of complaints about the film story wise. I think my biggest, and I'm even going to call it a complaint, I'm just going to say that it is something that I notice and it just doesn't always sit with me right, is the contrast between what is filmed on location and then what is obviously a studio set, most specifically on the rooftop. The rooftop is a very obvious studio set. It really kind of takes you away from the reality of the street, and they did such like back-breaking scouting for this film to find a neighborhood in New York that was being torn down and like really just bending over backwards to have them save this one facade of a building for this movie. And then they kind of, in my opinion, sully it with kind of a half-assed studio set for the rooftop. And that's the other thing that kind of bothers me too, is that throughout the movie inside the apartment building out on the street, uh, throughout the city, any of the things that happen that are either dangerous or suspenseful feel real. And then for some reason, anything that happens on the rooftop is a little slapsticky and Looney Tunish. You know, people get electrocuted and their hair gets big. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying that it's noticeably contrasting from the rest of the movie and the vibe that it builds. So I'm not going to call that a negative. I'm just saying that I'm calling the film out on not being consistent with the energy that it was trying to create between those two sets. But once again, the movie performances and writing is too good for it to really bother me. I, I agree with that. And again, when we get to the hair electrocution, I mean, that's kind of like an element that's just kind of to break the ice kind of deal. And I get it. You mm-hmm. want to attract the kids, whatever. Um, but yeah, there is something off with that and the way that it's shot. And I think I've pinpointed this because that, rooftop scenes feel really not as engaging as we get in the rest of the movie. And I agreed. The only thing I can place it to is the way the camera is because the camera is way too close to a lot of the characters. It's not, there are times where we needed kind of a wide angle shot to really appreciate that view of the rooftop. But at the same time, if it's a shitty uh, studio set, they don't really have much options, but to hide a lot of the faults, with the camera. And I think that was a misstep in the direction is that rooftop scene, especially when we have so many shots up on that rooftop. And this is where we get introduction to the aliens. And this is where we get our first reactions. So when it comes to Matthew Robbins direction and that, I think this was a little misstep on that piece of it. But at the same time, like you said, it's character driven. The characters are likable. The story is great. The dialogue is fantastic. So a lot of that focus you kind of forgive it because we want to focus on the words spoken on screen and the performances, but it is still so noticeable that it's hard not to pay attention to it. But you know, like the slapstick that does happen in other scenes, most specifically the diner scene where, you know, they're making the burgers in the background and the little one has a cheese fall on top of it, which Siskel talks about to me, that's engaging. That's fun. That's silly. And it's a throwback to let's say old stooges movies or old Looney Tune movies. I'm going to say it's even a throwback to like the Muppet movies, specifically Muppets Take Manhattan, where they're doing the whole diner dance scene. It's like one of my favorite moments in cinema. It's recognizable and people like it. You know, it's, a, it's not necessarily something that they're going to complain about because it's so whimsical and joyful and it's a good moment. And it's a win in the movie. There's a moment where this place has been trashed and these things fix it. And now it's an operating business again. And once it's an operation, you see everyone come back to life. Hume Cronin comes back to life. Jessica Tandy, even in her states of dementia, comes back to life and feels like she has a purpose. That's you know one of those second act moments that you know can only last so long before the bad happens. So it is kind of like a harbinger of what's coming, but it's done in such whimsy and fun that you don't really mind the subtle ridiculousness of it that our critics complain about. I love the fact that you brought up old cartoons and kind of the whimsical piece of it, because when we get to that diner scene, it's exactly that because the filmmakers have to kind of lighten 
give almost like a fun element to our robots that don't speak. And this is where I talked about earlier, where I wanted to get into the musical score that does a fantastic job to kind of mimic the emotion of the robots, where you have kind of an anticipation of the goofiness that's about to occur. You have kind of the the bump, bump, bump that just leads up to this mm -hmm. chaotic ensemble. And the score is so good. And I think they used it in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids in some elements. Um, but mm -hmm. it really matches that silent character, like the silent animated movies to really give our characters a little bit of personality to support them on screen. And when we get that midway point where we want to kind of ricochet the audience to really get more engaged into it, this scene was completely successful in that because we don't want to have all these serious tones. And it was the perfect time, perfect place in the movie on, on the runtime to really kind of ricochet that engagement back into the movie to give a little bit more push of heart and likability to not only the robots, but the characters. This is the moment where all of our characters are really smiling. And we even get Carlos mm -hmm. in there that at one point smiles. So it's a feel good scene that to me is one of the more memorable scenes because it tries to attack every piece of motion of hope and redemption, especially when we have Carlo the Carlos conversation with Faye. I also think, and I'm not, I'm not sure which writer was responsible for that scene, but that scene is definitely the iconic Amblin moment, right? It's going to have that moment in the second act that you want to last forever because everyone is happy, but you know it can't last forever. And that's such an Amblin trait. I'm not saying that as a negative. That is why Amblin films and Spielberg productions do feel the way they do. It, it is... I'm going to say a mathematical equation, the graph that they follow of emotion and peaks and valleys that makes those films so uh, appetizing to us. And it just, the, the execution of that, I feel takes that formula and makes it feel non-formulaic. <laughs> I know it's like a contradiction, but it's the best way to explain it. <laughs> well, it's one of those scenes that you kind of really just root for. You almost want the movie to kind of end, but you don't because it is a great kind of just feel good scene where you want Carlos to smile, Faye smiling after both sides have almost a rough life and some tragedy to them. It's almost good to see these two characters really come together. Now, we haven't really spoken about the special effects. To this day, the special effects in this blow my mind for practical effects and the fact that they are not done with space as the background. We don't have spaceships flying over planets and through, you know, rebel moons. All of the action takes place in actual livable environments, apartment complex, stairwells, kitchens, diners. So doing all of that, you know, green screen matte compositing with these these little spaceships that are such intricate detail and having it look so great, it's still to this day, I'm like, Every single effect in this movie holds up to this day. And it's better than CG. It's better than CG could ever be. And it's one of those weird things, too, where it's like when you go back and you look at the special effects done in Star Trek motion pictures versus Star Wars motion pictures, my thing has always been about the detail, right? Star Wars never liked to show stuff up close. It was all far away. And then Star Trek wanted to show you like the decks and the galleys of the Enterprise and all the intricacies. And it was a special effect crew that worked on most of those, those effect shots that worked on these things. And that's what it feels like. It feels like these are mini versions of the Starship Enterprise or whatever, but they're sentient. I love it. I love it so much. And it bugs me when I hear people talk about how the effects don't hold up. I'm like, who are you even being right now? Well, there's a shot where we actually have one of the alien saucers get just right up to the camera. And to me, that is a confidence in the work that they're doing. Not only that, but I yeah. don't even mind a little bit of the contrast because at times you can see a little bit of the background contradicting the actual aliens. But to me, that builds a little bit of character to it where it still looks fantastic and it adds almost like a, a secondary personality to it. So to me, this the special effects are fantastic. And we have that scene where we take that magnifying glass inside the saucer and see almost a whole new world of how this robot ticks. And to me, that right. adds that curiosity and even more so the special effects to almost 
add on to the special effects were incredible. It builds that curiosity other than just showing it to show it. Look what I can do. This actually builds a curiosity to the character. So obviously we like this film. We both have the same grievances about it, but this again is one of those things where we're going to have to get critical on our critics here. So let's go ahead and run with what Gene has to say about this. And after the cheese is laid on the creature, the creature is served in the sandwich, but a little too slowly, the pacing of this film is off. This film was produced by Steven Spielberg's production company, and basically it's recycled E.T. fairy tale with more slapstick and less heart. Less heart than E.T. or Cocoon, for that matter. I watched this film thinking I was seeing basically a comic book with the best pages torn out. It's an empty story full of forced holiday warmth. Interesting, Gene. <laughs> I mean, okay, so let's start with the beginning where he just wants to call it a uh, rehash of E.T. and Cocoon. Uh, obviously, because that's the first thing you're going to go to. It's got elderly people who were in Cocoon, and it's got E.T. produced by Spielberg, directed by Spielberg, and that's what he thinks it's going for. This is where I feel like it's hard for me and why I don't consider myself a critic because... I am going to approach a film like this with what it is and what it's trying to be on its own. Not trying to compare it to what he already likes. You know, how can he say that the heart is not in this movie? This movie's 99% heart. And it's a brave enough to be heartwarming and heartbreaking at the same time. Where I feel E.T., as classic and as epic as it is, its cues of when you're supposed to be emotional towards the characters are so overly dramatized and forced because they have to be. Because they have to make you feel in touch with this alien creature that is essentially saving a broken family, right? Like, they're saving it, and it's saving them. He likes that. He likes that a lot. He likes it so much that he is not going to recognize the emotions and the writing and direction and performances of a film made by the same production company, because in his mind, it is just ripping it off and doing nothing original. This really drove me nuts on this review, because to me, he's just speaking aliens under Spielberg's belt. That's all it is, and... Like you said, there is no way you can't say this movie has heart. This is where I have a real problem in trying to see a point of view because the movie, like you said, is all heart. But he might as well have compared it to Aliens because it has an alien in it. So there's no right. There is nothing here that screams a copycat or a similarity to E.T. other than it having an alien and having heart. So if he was to compare it to E.T., you're right. They both had heart. This one has heart, but then he goes on to say it doesn't have heart. So to me, that is kind of a contradiction of himself. And again, we talk about the execution. How does the movie make you feel? He says that it was almost a comic book with all the pages turned out that I want to know more detail on, because if he's referring to just the special effects, which he does go into, then there's this movie like we've talked about. The focal point isn't the special effects. They're going to show it, but the characters are just as prominent as the aliens. I also have a problem with the idea that the slapstick is offensive to him, where there are so many films that even films we've covered in the nine, 10 episodes we've done, where he feels like there wasn't enough slapstick. It wasn't paying enough tribute to the slapstick films of the 30s and 40s. But here we are talking about how it really does do slapstick a la Looney Tunes or Max Fleischer cartoons extremely well. And he is offended by it. <laughs> oh, Gene. Well, to me, and that's another thing, too, is we take a lot of movies from the 80s and family movies that did have some slapstick to it. But this one, I think, would be the most tamest out of all the slapstick because you see, like, a covered electrocution that has fluffy hair. I mean, there is nothing really that I would take offensive to this because everything is usually almost heard, not seen, almost. But the moments of slapstick are done orchestrationally, too. 
You know, it's got the score behind it. It does feel like a live-action cartoon. Okay, let's I go on. More than you did. I, enjoy, I didn't wow. think it was forced, wor uh, forced warmth. I thought that the people in this movie and all the people in that house uh, interacted in an interesting way. Oh, I together. thought they were a predictable oh, okay. well, little bunch of stereotypes. We have the old couple and the ethnics and all that. Well, I think what about it was a the formula, wonderful formula animation movie and uh, use of the special effects. So that the well, flying saucers uh, have genuine personalities. They really move yeah. around in such a Roger, way. Roger, special effects really don't interest mm, me that not much. Not even anymore. when they're well done. Uh, when they are extremely well done, as mm. in Robocop. Yes, and with good humor, but well, not here. I tell you, I think that this movie had a lot of good feeling in it. It had a few nice laughs. It had some interesting special effects. Right. And I'll use the same argument you just used. It's better than most of the stuff out there. It really well, is. Well, <laughs> your boy nailed it on this one. <laughs> 100%. Here's in respect to Roger is he kind of makes a laundry list of everything that we've already talked about, of everything that goes right with the movie. Because he talks more about the family piece of it or I'm sorry, the feeling piece of it, the emotional piece of it. And again, we talk about how it makes you feel. And he says exactly that. It made him feel good. There's some good feeling in this movie. And he's 100% right on it because the special effects he goes into, he liked the special effects. But again, we get into that comparison by Gene saying he doesn't care about the special effects unless it's RoboCop. Unless they're really well done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Come on. So you can't just say there you can't just say it's either fantastic, it's amazing or it sucks. There has to be a something in the middle that actually blends into the movie that works with that particular movie. If you had spot on fantastic CGI in this movie, it might have deterred the story a little bit. It might have taken away some personality. It's whatever special effects will fit that story to move it forward and support the characters. And that's one thing that drove me nuts about Gene's review on this is he doesn't realize that as a critic. Well, I mean, and just let's talk about contradictions too. you know, the fact that there need to be well done like RoboCop. I mean, we've heard him talk about how ugly movies are thematically and RoboCop is probably one of the ugliest movies thematically. Yep. It's all played for satire, but that is one of those examples where they did use special effects and science fiction and all those different things that he likes to pick on to tell an ugly nihilistic story. And he is trying to put that on a pedestal and say that this feels forced and without warmth and that the special effects aren't good. This is where sometimes now that I've watched so many of these damn reviews, especially from him, where I think that sometimes he's afraid to admit he likes something. And so, therefore, he kind of kicks the dirt over it because he doesn't want to show his feelings. It's like the Grinch at the end, right? He doesn't want to let the Who's know that his heart's grown 10 sizes that day. I feel that sometimes if a movie really touched him, but he doesn't like the particular package it's delivered in, he's going to kind of push back on it and give a review like this. And this is where your boy does a great job of calling him out on his bullshit. Where he's just like, really, dude? Like, you don't think that there's real warmth in this movie? You don't think that these characters are interesting? You think that they're stereotypes of the ethnics that he likes to use? Your, your guy knows exactly what Gene is doing here. He's not going to throw all the cards on the table on camera. But you know what he's thinking. And I think that is one of the things that when you hear about the animosities between them in some episodes, it really comes out. That's what your boy does is he pokes the bear, but he's not going to like let the bear out of the cage, essentially. Yeah. And this one was set up and I wish this review would have gone on a little bit longer, too, because I feel this would have been a good debate and would have uncovered maybe some emotion out of Gene um, just to give at least something positive from this movie. Because usually when we're giving critiques, you want to at least try and say something positive. And the fact that it's just negative after negative after negative leads me to say that this was a one-star review without even reading the review. Or saying that there's nothing we're going to take out of this movie that's going to be a positive. Right. And this is the type of movie that would be impossible not to take a single thing away from that would be a positive. So, and yeah, Ebert goes on a complete defense of it. And instead of going towards any of the negatives, he outweighs it with all positives. 
So he doesn't go that route of the negative review on it. And Ebert's review was a solid three out of four. So it wasn't a perfected perfection, uh, a movie out of perfection. And but he has to go to the defense of this movie, at least on the heart and the special effects, because to me, that kind of statement, that bold statement from Gene is not the way to represent this movie. And the two actually contradicted themselves um, to a point where it almost became as one, a neutral review. So this movie needed to be defended by someone in this room. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And that's kind of what we're doing now, because I think both of us have enough uh, appreciation and enough experience with good and bad movies. Cause like we've said before, we enjoy some bad movies uh, because they know how to have fun. They know that they know how to get that out of us, even if aesthetically they're not pleasing and performance wise, they're not pleasing. There's an energy, right? And this movie has that, except it's, it's a good movie. I get really concerned when Gene and Roger does it too. Sometimes when they don't feel the energy, you know, cause the energy is there and in theater. I remember being what seven or eight years old when this came out in the theater and feeling the energy or the energy you watch it at home with your family it's palpable. There's no denying it. I, I can't imagine a person, unless they're a total sociopath, not being able to at least sense the whimsy and the magic that this movie is putting forward. Um, yeah, and then that that review really disturbs me. <laughs> yeah, and he, he goes on to kind of poke fun at Roger, uh, calling, giving him a the holiday feels. This did come out around Christmas time, and to me, this gives the feels of a good moral lesson of Christmas time. And he pokes fun that he made a good review for a Goldie Hawn movie. I'm assuming it's overboard at the same time, I would imagine. So, and during this holiday season, this I think would have been brought up out of everything that came out December 18th during that time, this would have been the movie to pick during Christmas time. And that would have, to me would have should have leaned that review in the right direction. And Roger is right compared to a lot of the stuff coming out around that time, that would be the movie to see around Christmas time. I mean, so the movies on this episode, Moonstruck, Overboard, Batteries Not Included, and Ironwood. Yeah, so you've got an Oscar-winning film there. You've got the, I'd say, explosion of chemistry between Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn and Overboard, and then this. I mean, those three movies work really well together. So if they watch these all in the same week for the review... Uh, maybe he didn't say it, but maybe he was trying to compare them and what they made him feel as to batteries not included. And that just wasn't the one for him. And so that was going to be the sacrificial lamb of this episode. That's the only way that I can make this review work in my head. It's like this week's two perfects. This is going to be my sacrifice. Absolutely. Because there is really no explanation to how this movie could have gotten the reaction out of that. Um, but when it comes to, because he didn't even give a good review, I don't think, to Overboard, if I remember correctly. I think we're starting to see a pattern here of how he feels about science fiction, fantasy films. We knew that, especially when they try to be funny and they throw some comedy in there. And, you know, he doesn't like Gorillas in the Mist either. All right. Well, so I'm going to have to say that my critic, Gene Siskel, on this one, he gets that solid D again. I'm not going to give him an F on this one because he didn't say he hated the movie. He just didn't recognize all the things that Roger obviously sees good in it, that we obviously see good in it. And I have a sneaking suspicion that he actually kind of liked it. He just didn't want to admit it. <laughs> yeah, when it comes to Roger, he listed and just bullet points exactly the feels and the likes. And it's exactly what a viewer wants to hear when they go into a movie like this. And when it comes to his written review, he goes into depth on why. And he makes some great points about uh, detail because Ebert's a science fiction guy as well. And he goes into the, it doesn't matter on the reasons why, because the heart is there. So he nails a lot of the bullet points on it. So I'm going to give him about three stars on it. Yeah, I'd say three stars. And if it was my review, I'd say an A minus two. I liked it. And I like that he bit back. I love it when he bites back. That's one of my favorite things about at the movies and sneak previews is when he bites back. He's like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Are you telling me <laughs> that you don't find this movie heartwarming? You soulless monster, you. <laughs> I love the little tidbit at the end where Gene says he's getting soft over Christmas, and he's the one that kind of looks like the Grinch at that point. 
where he just <laughs> just demolished this heartfelt film. Love it, love it, love it. Well, yeah, so great film, great conversation, and you know we're going to see what these guys do next because my pick for next week is Bob Fosse's semi-autobiographical film, All That Jazz, starring Roy Scheider in one of his best performances. And this is a film that... I don't really think a lot have people have seen, at least in our realm, because a lot of people think it's a full-blown musical. They don't know how dark it really is. So I'm really excited to talk about that film and about their critiques. And always, man, thank you for joining me on this episode. We just celebrated the release of our very first episode today, and we've been loving the feedback. It's been a lot of fun. So even though we're recording this in the past, today was the first day that the um, show came out on YouTube and on all the podcast platforms. And I'm really happy with it. I think you're really happy with it. So everyone, thank you in advance <laughs> for all of your participation and sharing and liking and reviewing and subscribing and just keep it going. We're going to keep these reviews coming and I'm just having a blast with it. The feedback's been outstanding, and it just makes me that much more excited of what's to come on the show. So we got a lot of good movies coming up this year, and I cannot wait for everybody to watch and listen and subscribe and follow. Absolutely. So as always, you can find Back to the Balcony on both of our websites. I'm on thecultworthy.com. You can also find links on my Twitter page, on my Facebook and Instagram under the Cultworthy. Justin, you are at themoviewire.com and you can find me on anywhere you listen to podcast youtube and any of the socials if you want to hear our true reviews of the film you can get onto our letterbox page i'm under the cult worthy justin's under the movie wire and you can see our true reviews and ratings there once again man i can't wait to talk to you next week everyone we will see you when we talk about all that jazz and bring you back to the balcony <laughs>